Christmas Day, as you know, is December the 25th. And according to the Christian calendar, the Christmas season goes from sundown on December the 24th until sundown on January the 5th. Now, if you count, that's how many days? 12 days. The 12 days of Christmas. Now, the wise tradition of the church is to celebrate the birth of Jesus for eight days. And there are several reasons, I'm sorry, for 12 days, for those 12 days. And there are several reasons for this. Not the least of which is that there are some things for which a quick party is inadequate. Just a blast of opening gifts before breakfast on a certain morning of the year. And this event what, that we're celebrating, it is certainly worthy of celebrating over an extended period of time. And I hope that you're discovering ways of doing this. I hope that you are discovering ways of making the time leading up to Christmas preparation and the time starting on Christmas and going for the next 12 days an extended celebration. Now, there's another reason that the church has traditionally sustained the Christmas season for 12 days. It's because the child that lies in the manger is the heart of the Christian faith. Who is this child? We need a few days to look into the face of this one and to ask, who are you? The prologue to John's gospel, the passage I just read, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, it begins with this question. This is John looking into the nativity, looking into the manger, and asking the question, who are you? If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 1. Look at this first verse. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's only one God. This is a central teaching of the Bible. Christianity, along with the other great monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, it it teaches that there is only one God. There are not multiple gods. There's just one. But the Christian view of this one God is not compatible with Islam. The Christian view of this one God is not compatible with a Judaism that rejects Christianity. The Christian view of this one God is that this one God has eternally existed as a trinity. One in essence, three in persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct. They're distinct persons. But at the same time, they are one in essence. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. However, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one God. Now, a few, about a month or so ago, Noel Hendrickson did a brilliant lecture in our church on this concept, the Trinity. It's on our website. You can go to the sermon section and you you can look it up there. He did... An excellent job of about 50 minutes explaining that. So I'm going to just reference that and give it and offer it there for you. Now, surely 
This is one of the most difficult aspects of Christianity. To understand. To wrap our mind around. To look into the manger and to say, you are God. And yet there is a distinction between you and the Father. And between you and the Spirit. And yet you are all three one God. This is complex. This is difficult. And here in John's first verse, we see him laying this out there. Expressing this distinction Yet unity. Look at his language. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. How can something be both with God and God at the same time? That's the Trinity. It's distinct in persons. Yet one in essence. He does it again in the very last verse of the prologue. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Now that's, that's straight out of the book Judaism. Right? This, is, this is a central plank of the Jewish faith. There is only one God. And then he says what? Who is at the Father's side. Now suddenly again he's tied. He's, he's laid this out there for us. That there is a single God. And yet this God is turned toward himself as a distinct person. He's at the Father's side. Literally in the bosom of the Father. He's turned toward the Father's bosom. And part of what John is doing here is he's saying, from now on, when you read the rest of my gospel, you need to know that the Christ that you're reading about is always turned toward the Father. In verse 1, he said, he in, he, in time past, he was preexistent, turned toward the Father. This is who he was. This is who he is. This is who he always will be. Not two different gods. They are one in essence. Now, as difficult as the Trinity is to comprehend, don't get so hung up on it in this passage that you miss the strong claim that John is making. Jesus Christ, who lay in a manger, is fully divine. That is is an astonishing thing. Madeline Lingle in her... In a beautiful children's book based on Giotto's um, paintings in a chapel in Italy calls it the glorious impossible. This impossible but glorious thing. This glorious thing that is impossible. That this child in a manger is an enfleshed God. This is a strong claim. This shatters all agreement between Christianity and Islam. So much we have in common for which we should be grateful, which we should build on, which we should recognize, which we should work together based upon. But on this issue, there is absolute incompatibility and between Christianity and Judaism. So much to share, so much to appreciate, so much to recognize. But on this issue, that the child in the manger is the only begotten son of God, that he is fully divine. This is at the heart of the Christian message. Jesus Christ, the child in the manger, is fully God. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the author of creation. D.H. Lawrence wrote a prose poem entitled The Third Thing. Water is H2O. 
Hydrogen two parts, oxygen one. But there is also a third thing that makes it water. And nobody knows what it is. The atom locks up two energies, but it is a third thing present, which makes it an atom. Jesus Christ is the third thing. Holding everything together. Giving everything its particular unique identity. The child in the manger is the one who brought all things together from the beginning. And who sustains them all in the meanwhile. Christmas, 12 days. Because the child who was born to Mary, Jesus Christ, is not simply a human being. He is not merely A great human being. He is not only a brilliant human being. He is God. The almighty creator who made all things enfleshed as a human. And if Jesus is not God. If Jesus is not fully divine. If he is not the creator of all things. Then we are doomed. The whole Christian faith depends on this doctrine. It maintains and supports all other aspects of the Christian faith. It is non-negotiable. With this, Christianity stands or fails. Without this, you don't have Christianity. The worm has hollowed out the whole, the whole fruit. It's gone. It's a shell. It's a sham. It's a game. We need 12 days to look into the glorious impossibility of the manger. We need scripture and prayer and all the other tools that can help us sustain our focus. Things like art and song and rituals and traditions. We need to fill up these 12 days so that we continue to behold the glorious impossible. And looking into the manger and seeing that God has enfleshed himself, we should ask, why? Why did God do this? Why have you done this? Why have you, for whom the whole universe depends to be held together, why have you... Taken such a weak form that you depend on a teenage mother and a confused father. Why? Why have you done this? And the answer, look at the front of your worship guide. Hirtentat St. Jan's marvelous Kioscuro painting. You know, you know what that is? You know what a chioscuro is? It's when there's a dark painting and a brilliant light. And where is the light coming from? What is the source of the light in the painting? The source of the light is the child. The world is dark. By the way, do you see how many animals are there? You can barely see them. You can see the ox and right beside him, if you look at it on your computer, like we talked about on Christmas Eve, there's a donkey. That great tradition that I 
talked us through just a few days ago. The world is dark. It's really dark out there. And sometimes it's dark in here too. We don't have to look far. The darkness is etched into our own recent history. The horrors of the 20th century. And now they're adding up the multiple follies of the 21st century. We celebrate the birth of Christ during the darkest moment of the year. Not because we think Jesus was born on December the 25th. Nobody's sitting around trying to figure out the day he was born. But because we're making a theological statement. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. That's why St. Jan's painted it in darkness. It's a night nativity. It's why we celebrate Christmas in the darkest part of the year. It's because Christ is the light. Jesus is the light. All of us. All of us are looking for light. All of us need light. And Jesus is that light. Reason is not the light. We've lived in a remarkably committed to reason few centuries. And it hasn't improved things. It has not eliminated genocide. It has not eliminated poverty. If anything, it is aggravated and empowered People to harm the powerless. Now our wicked dominations can reach around the world through only something we purchase. Reason is not the light. Love is not the light. Hollywood would tell us that finding the right one is the light. And let's just look at Hollywood to see if it's working. Is it a place full of light? Has the quest for love resulted in light? Love is not the light. Reason is not the light. Facts are not the light. Our scientific culture will tell us that facts are unassailable. Has that proven true? Since we've cast off tradition, since we've cast off belief, have we become a more enlightened culture? Are we really more enlightened in the world today? You think medieval England was brutal? Visit Darfur. Visit the rubble in Iraq after we left. Visit Afghanistan. Visit the Latin American countries that are, that are breaking under the weight of some of our foreign policies. Facts, we are told, are trustworthy and should not be doubted. This is the second strong claim of Christianity. Not only that Jesus is fully divine, but also that Jesus alone is light and life. If you have a Bible, look with me a few pages to the left at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John, talking about John the baptizer, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So Jesus has moved. He's living in a new place. He's living in Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And look, what, look at 
Look how Matthew interprets the physical move of Jesus to a new region. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those who dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. Do you see the strong claim that Jesus himself alone is light? And that just him taking up residence in a neighborhood qualifies as dawn. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we're told the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light and there was light. This is what John is referencing. God said, in other words, the word of God. Brought light to darkness in creation. The word challenged the darkness before creation. And now John is saying it challenges the darkness that is within creation. The word is bringing into being new creation. Jesus is the word through whom all things were made. Over and over in Genesis, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. It was the word of God that affected creation. And now John says, you want to know who that was? It's interesting. The first three words in Hebrew of Genesis. Barashit bara Elohim. Barashit in the beginning. It's one word that we have to translate into three words. And the second word in Hebrew from the first verse of the Bible, bara, is a, a verb. In the beginning, created. The third word, Elohim, is God. Okay? In John's gospel, in arcane, in the beginning, hain. Another verb. Not a verb that says created. A verb that says was. John says Genesis takes you to the initial action. I'm going to take you behind that. And show you that before there was ever creation, there was Christ. And it is that Christ, that pre-existent one, the one who trumps Genesis 1-1. The one who precedes all of the action of God. That is the one who lies in this manger. And then God turns to the Son. And through the Son creates all things. And now God has turned again to the Son to conquer the darkness. This is who lays in the manger. And we get the same teaching at the end of John's gospel. In John chapter 20 verse 1 it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And guess what she discovers? The resurrected Christ piercing the darkness. It's all over this gospel. A strong claim that Christ alone is light. Not your success. Not your genealogy. Not your intellectual acumen. Christ alone is light. Not facts. Not science. Not money. Not even for the romantic's love. Only Christ can pierce the darkness Reason can't save us. Facts can't save us. Love can't save us. Jesus alone can save us. This is the judgment and the promise of Christianity.
And it's hard. Because there's this idea in our culture that we don't really need mercy. What we need is affirmation. But John's Christmas message issues a sharp and timely reminder to relearn the difference between mercy and affirmation. Between a Jesus who speaks God's word of judgment and grace and a homemade Jesus who gives us good advice about discovering who we really are. John's theology of the incarnation is about God's word coming as light into darkness. Wicked, evil, morally culpable darkness for which we are responsible. John's theology of the incarnation is the hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. There's a kind of avant-garde notion of the incarnation in Christian circles today where people like to talk about incarnational missions and incarnation ministry as if it is all affirmation and no judgment. But that is a denuded theology of the incarnation. Our world is simultaneously and at the same points becoming more liberal and more totalitarian. And Christmas judges that. You were made by him. You were made for him. You came from him. Come back to him. This is John's invitation. This is the only way to life and life. So now we should ask, how? How do I come back to him? If Jesus alone is light and life, how do I get that light? How do I receive that life? Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Receive Jesus. Receive your creator. How do you receive your creator? You receive Jesus. How do you receive Jesus? John tells you. Believe. You believe in him. Literally. Believing into his name. But that's a strange idiom. We don't really say. I believe into his name. You know. I believe in McDonald's. We don't really say. I believe in two McDonald's. However. We do use this idiom. We just use it in a different context. There was a movie, Drew Barrymore produced it in 2009. He's just not that into you. That's what John is saying. To believe into Jesus. It means you believe this story so much that you put your trust in Jesus. That you commit yourself to this Jesus. That you submit to him regardless of the cost. Believe. This verb is the heart of John's gospel. It comes up two chapters later in the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes into him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And a couple of pages beyond that in John chapter six, verse 28. They said to him, some people asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, that's where a lot of our culture is today. It wants to sideline belief and foreground ethics. A lot of our religious culture today wants to trump belief with ethics. 
What must we do? What must be our action in this world? How are we supposed to comport ourselves? What should be our habits and our practices in order to do the works of God? And how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believing in Jesus is the goal of John's gospel. And when you get to the end of John's gospel, in case you haven't gotten it yet, he spells it out yet again in John chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs, verse 30, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. We are not saved by working really hard to do really good things. We are saved when we receive Jesus. And we receive Jesus when we believe into his name. When we make the simple decision to believe him and to live with him believingly the rest of our lives. Now this is the third strong claim of Christianity that I want to hold out for you. Belief matters. Belief matters. And like I said, some people in our society like to stress action more than believing. Some people like to stress ethics more than creeds. But Jesus is, and Jesus' strong emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount is an argument in favor of that approach to religion. Some people like to frame the Christian faith based on practice rather than as a system. Saying it's not so much what people think as what people do. That Christianity is a set of actions, practices, more than a list of truths. And again, passages like the Sermon on the Mount should give us a certain sympathy to the call to action. But we should not so overreact to past hypocrisies that we deny the central claim of John's gospel. Belief matters. Creed matters. In fact, throughout the history of Christianity, the Christian faith has been fiercely dogmatic. We live in a culture that has said dogmatism is bad. Dogmatic is bad. We need loving actions. Those are what really matter. And we live in a culture that tries to say we can't agree on things. So let's stop focusing on proposition and truthful beliefs. And instead focus on truthful action. To which John says, baloney. No. Belief matters. There are some things to which we must agree to disagree. But there are other things for which if we disagree on one of us is wrong, one of us is right, one of us is damned, and one of us is saved. And that matters. And that is what John is saying. There is a core. There is a set of dogmatic, creedal beliefs that are non-negotiable. And without them, you might have the hollowed out core, of the shell of Christianity, but you don't have its core. And you are to be pitied. 
There is a strong and adamant quest within Christianity for theological correctness. There are specific and serious propositions that must be believed. There are a catalog of specific facts about the nature of God and the nature of this world and the nature of of humanity. Christianity has always held up certain scandalous particular beliefs. That Jesus really was born of a virgin. That Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that however much the author of the universe may surpass our understanding, he has told us some things we must understand. And that we can't push on the apophatic belief. The apophatic is that you can't define God. That you can't really say who he is. You can't lock him down. So the best you can do is try to live in his trajectory. This is a terrible move. We all know that you can't define God. I can't define my wife. I love that U2 song, the mysterious distance between a man and a woman. And the longer Janelle and I have been married, the more deeply I realize that she is far more than I can ever imagine. And there is a profound mystery to her. But that does not give me the excuse of not knowing some things about her that are non-negotiable. And on this note, That belief matters as much as action. And if your system pits one against the other, then you have a wrong system. There is a strange and sad strand that runs throughout John's prologue. The one who made the world, the creator of the world, throughout his prologue, is unknown to his creation. And this isn't something that God just stands by and watches. Not only is this God unknown, he is rejected and resisted. Look at John chapter 1. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Which means the darkness has tried to overcome it. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, unless we recognize this dark strand running through the Christmas story, unless we recognize there is darkness, we will be in danger of domesticating Christmas. We'll think it's only about comfort and joy and not also about incomprehension and rejection and darkness and denial and stopping the ears and judgment. Christmas is not about the living God coming to tell us everything's all right. John's gospel isn't about Jesus speaking the truth and everyone saying, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Why didn't we realize it all along? Are are you reading the lectionary readings? If so, recently you've read about Herod massacring the babies. Christmas is about God shining his clear, bright torch into the darkness of our world and our lives and our hearts and our imagination. And the darkness rejecting it, not comprehending it, resisting it, refusing to believe it. Now, if that's you, if that's where you are, if Jesus fully God The only light in life and salvation, if that remains opaque to you, 
If that's where you are, puzzled and unconvinced, filled with doubt, scratching your head, the good news is that right there in John's prologue, next to the incomprehension and rejection, there goes the parallel theme of people hearing and receiving Jesus' words, believing them, discovering, as he says, that he is light and life, breathing into the dry, dead fabric of our being and producing new life and new birth and new creation. Jesus is born into a world where everyone is blind and deaf. But some, in fear and trembling, allow his words to challenge them. To rescue them and heal them and transform them. That's what's on offer at Christmas. That is God's invitation to you. Three strong claims. And a bountiful invitation. That when we learn to hear and understand and believe in this Jesus... And in this story about him, it will transform our lives with its judgment and mercy. Let's pray.